Hey everyone, I hope you're all doing well today, and welcome to another episode of the Yet To Be Named Podcast. We're going to be going over uh, a couple of books today, and also talking a little bit about uh, Breath of Fire. It's going to be kind of a book-heavy episode. I know I talked about, uh, on the last episode, I talked about my best games for 2022, and yeah, that was kind of fun. But in this one, we're going to be talking about the first uh, Doom novel, this one was published back in the mid-90s, and, you know, it's fairly fun. It's a, it's an interesting one. It adds an awful lot to the mythology of, of Doom, which was desperately needed. And then you also then we also have um, Fight Items Magic, or Fight Magic Items, sorry. Fight Magic Items by uh, Aiden Moore. It's a pretty great book. It really is. That one covers the history of the JRPG genre from uh, basically following Dragon Quest and Final Fantasy. He talks about a few other RPGs as well, but for the most part, we're following those two series. And then we'll wrap this up with uh, a little bit of my first impressions on Breath of Fire, the first one for the Super Nintendo. It's it's fine. <laughs> it's uh, nothing amazing. Uh, nothing terrible. It, it's just kind of fine. So let's get into the first uh, Doom book here. This one was really interesting because how the heck do you write a novel about Doom? And even further on that, how do you write four novels on Doom? A game that just does not have a really deep story. And a sequel to it, which sort of has a bigger story, but still really isn't all that really isn't all that great of one or at least really isn't all that in depth and you really didn't need it because you're you're just a guy with a whole bunch of guns uh, honestly a, a ridiculous arsenal of guns going around shooting demons and zombies and that sort of thing it, it's a very interesting idea for a book uh, I mean the developers famously didn't care about story uh one of them, I believe it was John Carmack, said uh, story in a video game is a lot like story in a porno. You expect it to be there, but it isn't really necessary. Well, you take the bare, the way you do it is you take the bare bones of the game and you add some more characters to it, give the main character more motivation and backstory, and yeah, you tr- and it turns out to be a pretty fun and interesting book. In the book, you have more than one main character. Uh, you have two. You're following the events of the first three episodes of Doom. So the basically the shareware release. Uh, they don't get into any of the other ones. So like Final Doom isn't really talked about in here or anything like that. So we're following uh, Corporal Fly Taggart. He is a... And, uh, sorry. <laughs> yep, Corporal, F- Corporal Flynn Taggart. His nickname is Fly. And first class, uh, private first class, uh, Arlene Sanders. Those are going to be our two uh, big characters in this. Later they meet a scientist named Bill Rich, and he kind of fills in some more of the backstory as to what's going on. He isn't super important to the story, but he is there, and he's one of the three characters who really kind of matter in all of this. So we start off with uh, with Flynn, and we get his backstory, which is, is fine. He 
just kind of rambles on about being a Marine and what he thinks. And honestly, that part was a little bit incomprehensible. And it, it was weird. <laughs> I was reading it and I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Can you please get to where you're going to be shooting aliens anytime soon? Or shooting anything, just anything in general. And, yeah, he talks about um, how their company ended up on Mars and how it was kind of his fault, uh, why they're responding to a distress call from Phobos. Uh, I kind of like this part because it sort of adds some more meat onto the story. You didn't really get a whole lot of that when you were playing the game because you didn't need it. It was more about fast-paced arcade action. So you didn't really need to know what Doom Guy's name was because it didn't really matter. And here it it means a little bit more because it's it's a much longer story that they're trying to tell. Uh, Moore's also added uh, about uh, Flynn and his relationship with the different Marines, which comes really uh, oh gosh how can I put this? It's really a, a welcome addition to it. Because it speaks to him just having more motivation for doing what he's doing. There's more of like a camaraderie with the people that are there. And he has friendships with some of them. They were drinking buddies. They fought together. They kind of do everything together. So having more of his sort of um, interactions with the people that are there is kind of great. I'll talk a little bit later about sort of a missed opportunity, which I think could have been, could have made the book a, a lot more interesting and a little bit better, but that'll be for later on in this. So they end up on Mars, they respond to the distress signal, and shit goes sideways real fast on them. They find some of the demons, and you kind of are told what's happening through Flynn sitting in a room with two people guarding him as they're kind of listening to the radio chatter from the rest of the squad. So he hears the rest of the of the team kind of get overrun and taken out by the demons. And then he escapes from the two people who are guarding him by basically beating the shit out of both of them, taking one of their guns, some of the ammo, and then leaving. So now we have basically the beginning of the game. You're a marine with your pistol and some and like 50 rounds of ammo or whatever. And we get him sort of encountering the different uh, zombies and everything and him describing everything that happens. So he's talking about just the smell that the zombies are putting off. He, he says it smells like sour lemons. And he runs into mostly like scientists and everything that are there. And he's basically killing all of uh, all the zombies, gathering up more equipment as he goes, and eventually he runs into the imps, so like the brown spiky demons that lob uh, they lob fireballs at you, but he kind of calls them like fi like flaming snot balls, which was kind of funny. And he takes down a couple of them, and then he has a conversation with one, which I thought was really cool. So he he's talk he also talks to some of the zombies as well, which I thought was kind of it's kind of fun and kind of interesting, and you don't think about that sort of thing when uh, you're running through the game blowing stuff up. The zombies don't really tell him too much. Uh, that's I don't know. He just kind of hears a bunch of gibberish and learns about some of the things that are going on, like kind of the whole science experiment that went wrong. 
when he talks to the demons, that's when stuff gets really interesting because they they try to like get him to join their side and whatnot. And it's explained that you know some of the um, sorry some of the some of the people that they've turned have not been changed into zombies, or at least the demon alludes to that. And so you kind of think, okay, well, maybe maybe some of the marines have turned into uh, into these like collaborators and whatnot. And that's that's kind of interesting and everything. And then he shoots the zombie in the face with a shotgun, so that's the end of that. Because if Flynn joined the demons and whatnot, it it really would make for a shorter book. So he goes through basically the first chapter, and he's following. Sorry, the first episode of Doom. And he's following all of these little marks that are being left behind by who he believes is Arlene Sanders. It is, but he doesn't really know that. He just sees like AS and then an arrow that points in a certain direction. So he's following those throughout the first thing. Uh, He fights the two, um, I believe they're barons of hell, but he calls them princes of hell. He fights the two of them at the end of the first episode. And then he jumps into a teleporter and goes to the next section. And we get probably the dumbest thing that I I think happens. And I don't know if this is the same in the game as it is in the book. Because it's been a while since I've gone through all the episodes of Doom. But he jumps to the teleporter, shows up on the other side, and he's completely naked and all of his gear is gone. So all the rockets, all the bullets, the guns that he's picked up along the way, they're all gone. And for some godforsaken reason, his clothes are gone, too. It's strange, but whatever. So he goes through the process of collecting everything all over again. He has to find all of his guns, has to find his ammo, he basically field strips a zombie, puts some more clothes on. And then he runs into Arlene Sanders, and yeah, they kind of go back and forth a little bit, exchange some information and everything. And then they start going through this uh, as well. Another strange thing that happens is uh, they have to find the the three key cards. So the red, blue, and yellow key cards that are just throughout the game. But these key cards are apparently like a one-use thing. So if you have a blue key card, you use it on the blue door. It opens the door, but like it eats the key card or something, so they can't use it again. This feels kind of weird, and it makes the story a little bit repetitive because it's always them going to an area, finding a key card, opening a door, moving to the next. The game kind of felt like this as well, and they comment on it, how it feels like repetitive and boring, or at least they feel that way in the book. The book is a little bit more exciting because they kind of explain more, but it's sort of this really annoying process of finding a key, having the door eat the key, being allowed through, and then moving to the next one. It is explained that the rockets can apparently blow the doors open, which I thought was a brilliant idea, and I kind of wish you could do that in the game. Like, if you found a door where you couldn't really figure out where the key was, you can just shoot a rocket at it, blow the door open, and move through. Uh, that That is one change in the book that seems a little bit more practical, that, like, yeah, you... You could probably do that. <laughs> that would make a lot more sense than trying to find a key card and whatnot. Uh, so what, what the key card 
thing that bothered me the most was you don't do that in the game. You have to find new key cards and everything from level to level, but they're finding stuff like within the same level and everything. So they're always looking for these. Like I said, it's they seem to be like one-use key cards, and that wasn't the way the game worked. If you found the red key in a level, you had the red key the entire time. You didn't have to like find a new one every time you wanted to open a door. So that's probably why it seemed a little weird to me. Uh, but they do run through this fairly quickly once Arlene gets there. You meet all of the different iconic uh, monsters in this. So the zombies, the imps, the demons, the Kakako demons, the uh, lost souls, uh, the barons of hell. And I think he also runs into a cyber demon as well, which they call... Some of the names are changed in this, which I thought was kind of weird. But it makes more sense. Like, they're just coming up with different names for the monsters as they move along. So, like, the Kakako demons are called pumpkins because they think they look like a pumpkin. The cyber demon is called a... I think it's called a steam demon or something like that. Just strange stuff <laughs> that gets changed. Uh, the barons of hell are called princes of hell. Yeah, it's um, it's a little odd for them to use those things, but it's... It is kind of interesting. It is brought up that um, that Flynn is very religious, so he sees these things as demons, and he kind of struggles with that to realize where he is. And Arlene is not like that. She She's not very religious at all, so she doesn't really care too much about all the weird iconography and the strange monsters that they're fighting, at least not in the same way that Flynn does. It's a little strange to bring that up. But as we move through into the the, the last episode, uh, it repeats the same thing again, only this time both Flynn and Arlene are both naked and lost all their guns and everything. And so they go through the, the different levels and everything. They find their shit all over again. And then they come across a scientist named uh, Bill, uh, Bill Rich. And he sort of slowly explains to them just what the heck is going on. So you find out about the uh, the failed science experiment, that sort of thing. Uh, you find out more about what's going on in Deimos. Uh, by the way, they warped from Phobos to Deimos in the book, just like they do in the game, which is, is pretty interesting. And it's explained that... Um, it's explained that Arlene was stationed on Deimos for a while, that Deimos got basically evacuated of all of its marines and it was sort of like a top secret science experiment and everything it's pretty cool actually I, I really did dig that part so when they find Rich uh, he kind of fills them in on everything that happened eventually everything that happened with the science experiment and he also um, they also rescue him from the spider mastermind Apparently the spider mastermind had captured him and was like interrogating him for information and whatnot. And it's also explained that the spider mastermind is doing its best to like keep all the demons together. Because just like in the game, if the demons kind of like aggro onto each other is the best way I can put it, they'll start fighting each other. And throughout the book, they kind of use this to their advantage to get the different demons to fight one another. And it's explained that the Spider Mastermind is somehow 
keeping these people together to like one single goal or all the demons together for one single singular goal. It's also explained that the spider mastermind can use like psychic attacks on you and everything, which I thought was really, really cool. And it's something that you couldn't really do in the game, but it would have been really awesome if they had somehow worked that part in. Uh, it, it was just kind of a really interesting change because you'll have um, you'll have uh, uh, Flynn at the end when they're fighting the Spider Mastermind. He'll get like visions and everything, and he gets a vision of basically the demons invading Earth. And it turns out it's not really a vision. It's uh, or not really a vision. It's what's actually happening and everything. So Rich ends up dying, which is kind of a say, kind of a, a shame. I really liked him. It's it's um, he's not a marine, so he's he doesn't have the same like skill set as Flynn and Arlene. But it's explained like he's sort of learning as he goes, and he's kind of gaining the respect of Flynn as as you go through, because Flynn's still the primary narrator to all of this. So yeah, he he kind of explains that uh, Rich is doing better. He's a great guy and everything, and they kind of form a bit of a friendship. And then Rich gets killed at the end of it and sacrifices himself to sort of blow everything up so they can kill the spider mastermind and move on. And it ends with them kind of going to, like, preparing to go to Earth to save Earth because Deimos is apparently a space station or a spaceship now and they've traveled to Earth's orbit and they're going to somehow get down to Earth to fight everything off. So it, it wraps up the first three episodes of Doom, and then it kind of prepares you to go into Doom 2. It's pretty awesome. So uh, that's kind of the story of the book. Uh, now we get into like some of the other characters and everything and their motivations. Uh, yeah, the game didn't have any real characters in it. It just had the, the cutout Doom guy, which was who the players were playing as, and all of the monsters, and that was all you really needed for a game like that. His backstory was kind of there as Doom Guy, but with Flynn you get a much broader story. And you also find out he has friends. He doesn't really have a family apparently, which is weird, but you know, whatever. I'm wondering how they get his uh, pet rabbit and all of this, but that's for the next book that I haven't quite read yet. But he definitely has friends, he has people that he cares about, and that's sort of getting him through everything. I thought Bill Rich was, like, one of the more interesting characters in this book, but, you know, he he dies off pretty quick. So I guess he serves his purpose of explaining what happened and kind of uh, telling them the reason why everything was going on. Sort of talks about the aliens that made the gates that they were messing with, how they didn't really know what the aliens looked like and how he doesn't really know if the demons that we're encountering are the actual aliens that that were on the other side or anything like that. So it really just seems like there's a it's a portal to hell and everything, which we know as the people who played the game, but the if you just picked up this book and didn't know anything about it, you might not get that right away. It is uh, alluded to that it's hell in the book, but it's not necessarily said outright that they are in hell. You also have Arlene, and she's kind of a fun character as well. She is 
at first she's going to be Flynn's like motivation to continue to go because he's looking for Arlene to get her out. That's his whole goal initially is to find the Marines that are still alive and then get them out. And unfortunately that doesn't happen. So that means those two guards that he beat the shit out of and just kind of left there, they're still stuck on Phobos, most likely dead. Which is kind of a shame for them, but they they serve their purpose in the story so we can move on from them. Uh, there's also his commanding officer, who I think uh, was probably the one character that they should have done more with and didn't. And I didn't really mention him too much, but he was he was the commanding officer. He's an alleged war criminal because he ordered them to basically kill a whole bunch of monks at the very beginning of the book. And Flynn was trying to tell them, no, let's not do that, ends up punching his superior officer in the face and is going to be court-martialed eventually, probably when all of this is done. Maybe they'll let him off, but whatever. But Weems is built up, sorry, Lieutenant Weems is his commanding officer, and he's built up as like a potential antagonist throughout this, the first part of this book, as being like a big antagonist and everything, until he's found dead near the end of the book, and, and that was kind of a letdown for me. It's like, he does have kind of a gruesome death, but I feel like it should have been more, like he should have been like some... I don't know, like the chain gun guy. He should have been like a zombie with a chain gun or something, and he's yelling at at a Flynn about how he needs to join with the zombies and everything, or join with the demons to take over the earth. Or he should have been some collaborator or something like that. And we don't get that. It's just kind of like boom, he's dead. His he's dead alongside the other the last of the three female Marines that are in this little group. And that's kind of the end of him, and then they move on. It's kind of a shame that you just have him, have them stumble across uh, Weems's dead body, and it's like, well, yeah, he's dead, and that's great, but there should have probably been more to his death. At least that's me thinking, and uh, that's kind of like the... I've been watching way too many horror movies, so every time the ass- there's like an asshole character, you just kind of expect them to get some special death or something. And that was kind of what I was expecting with Weems. So what, what do I like and dislike about this book? Um, I really enjoyed this book. I think it's absolutely great. If you're a fan of Doom, you'll probably like it. If you've never played Doom before, it's a pretty fun kind of sci-fi romp through uh, through basically hell. And <laughs> it's pretty great. The characters aren't anything special, to be perfectly honest, but it was still a pretty fun book. Uh, the Spider Mastermind being given an extra weapon I thought was really cool. I understand why they couldn't do that in the game, but it was pretty awesome to see him have something like that. Basically, the Spider Mastermind has his chain gun, then he's got a bunch of psychic attacks, which is pretty awesome and makes sense because the thing's just a giant brain on some spider legs, which was cool hearing them try to describe it and have uh, Bill ki- like trying to explain to them like what he saw and not really being able to explain everything and 
it, it like it really shook him. So like he was trying to tell them what it was, but at the same time he didn't want to remember it. It's kind of a, a cool thing that happened in this. Uh, the the biggest dislike, uh, yeah, the biggest dislike was how they would go through the teleporter and they would lose all their equipment and f and we'd go through the same thing of them finding all their shit all over again. That was kind of dumb, and it it was worse than when they would have to try to find the keys. I thought the keys was kind of stupid because it at least with this one I was like, well, they had them before. Like, they found them five pages ago. Why would they not have them anymore? <laughs> it's one of the things where it, it did happen in the game between from level to level, but in a book you can take some liberties and say, okay, they found them and now they're good. Or maybe, like, change them to be, like, security badges. So, like, they need to find the next the person with the next highest clearance to get into the next section. Or something along those lines. So just them having to constantly find more stuff was just really annoying. Uh, I love the character development and everything, how these guys kind of, how they kind of grew as the book went on a little bit. And you just sort of heard more about uh, Flynn and Arlene and a little bit about Bill. I kind of wish, spoiler, I wish Bill had made it out, but he didn't. So I don't know, he will probably get a new Bill in the second book or something like that. Uh, I did like that you had them trying to like explain and describe the different monsters that they were seeing. I thought that was really cool, and it just made things kind of special and different. Uh, oh yeah, I, I liked that uh, Flynn talked to the monsters. I thought that was amazing. Like that was something you didn't see in the books, or sorry, you didn't see that in the games because that that wasn't the point of those games. But it was kind of cool to see that in uh, in the book, just be, just because it was like, oh, okay, so that's kind of how he's learning some stuff. Like that's pretty cool. So now I, when I play this game again, I'm gonna imagine like just the demons smack talking me, talking about how they're gonna kill me and like destroy my soul or some crazy stuff like that, and then I shoot them with a rocket and blow them to hell. It, it was just something that was kind of fun. I, I really I really liked it. Um, I think there was only one weapon that didn't make an appearance in the book. Uh, the plasma rifle was the only one that I don't remember being mentioned, and if it was, uh, it probably went by a name that I didn't recognize. But it was nice that every gun is talked about in this. Uh, this is the first Doom, so the super shotgun isn't talked about, but all of the other guns are mentioned. Some of them are given uh, more military names. So, like, the uh, the chain gun is called something else. Uh, the rocket launcher is talked about, and it's kind of explained how he's carrying around just hundred, like 50 to 100 different rockets. Uh, he, like, they're little tiny battery-sized rockets, so it, it makes more sense that he has, like, 30 of these goddamn things instead of, you know, a big two-foot-long rocket that he somehow has 50 of that just defies all logic. It's kind of fun that they changed that to have it make more sense. Especially since this is the future, so probably rockets will be a lot smaller in, you know, whenever this book takes place. Uh, so yeah, this is one of the better video game novels that I've read. 
the other ones, um, most of them have been just the Worlds of Power books and then also uh, Shadowkeep. So I don't have a lot to really compare this one to. But at the moment, I would say this one is one of my favorites. I don't know if it is exactly my favorite. I don't think I want to have a favorite just yet. But <laughs> uh, this one is is pretty fun. And it's kind of an older one. So yeah, mid-90s or so. And it's the first one in a four-part series. So I'll get to the other three at some point. All right, let's uh, let's move on to the next one here. Okay, so our next one here, uh, Fight Magic Items by Aiden Moore. Uh, this is a wonderful history of Japanese role-playing games. Uh, the book mainly follows Dragon Quest and Final Fantasy as they kind of shape the genre as we know it. Other series, you know, they're, they're fine. They're <laughs> I'm not saying other series are bad, but Aiden uh, doesn't really talk too much about them or really go as in-depth as he does with especially Final Fantasy. He kind of drops off Dragon Quest for a bit, which mirrors the, the games, or mirrors the series, uh, mirrors the series releases in the United States. Wow, okay. <laughs> had, uh, not sure why I struggled with that one, but oh well. I only really had one big issue with this book, and that has to do with just the definition of uh, of JRPGs. And, yeah, it, it just wasn't made totally clear to me, and the way that um, Aiden describes it, it doesn't really... The definition doesn't really make a whole lot of sense for me, especially when he has like different genres in here and everything. And yeah, it's it, it's very weird. I'll talk about it later. Uh, let's just kind of get into the book. So we he starts with the the origin of uh, JRPGs, and he talks about the stuff that came before Dragon Quest, and he does he does a decent job of explaining why he doesn't think that those count as being JRPGs in, like, the same style as Dragon Quest and Final Fantasy, Fantasy Star, Mother, those games. It's fine, and I am going to talk about that later, so I'll just... Ugh. But he he brings up how those two series, uh, Dragon Quest and Final Fantasy, started. And he talks about what kind of made them different, what made them stand out. And he talks about the technical limitations at the time of those two series being on the on the Famicom. And then eventually on the NES and everything. And it's very interesting to, to read all of those things. And it's something that I, I really enjoy reading. Uh, it, it was just a really wonderful way of doing it. And I like the fact that he had kind of this running theme throughout the book of... Here are the games that were released for these two series. Here's how each of them changed from the previous uh, version of the game, or the previous game, not previous version, just the, the previous game in the series. And he talks about just the, the drastic changes that Final Fantasy would do, where they would just throw anything at the wall, and they would try anything just to see if it would work. And if it did, they would keep going with it. If it didn't, they kind of would just abandon it or try to refine it later on. You see that with like Final Fantasy and then going to Final Fantasy 2, where they created an awful mechanic for progression. 
just an absolutely horrible, horrible mechanic for progressing in the game uh, by getting rid of experience and having you do just a whole bunch of other stupid shit to get leveled up. And that's a nightmare, and I hate it. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it, it's... So it takes the second Final Fantasy, um, and it takes just the wonderful story that is in Final Fantasy 2, and it just screws the whole game up by having an awful progression system. And so they threw that one out, and then they moved on to like a class or like a yeah class system in three, and then four ditched that to have um, more of a, a set classes and everything, but allow you to have more customization with your party and that sort of stuff. And then it moved on to uh, uh, then it mo- then it moved on to a more refined version of the class based system in five, and then you have six, and then seven, eight, nine, ten. And each one it always feels different. The stories are always different. There's nothing that well, there's nothing that connects them story-wise. There are a few things that connect them, just from them being Final Fantasy games, like the airship, chocobos, uh, that sort of thing. And then you have Dragon Quest, which would tell longer narratives over multiple games. And that one would do slow iterations of stuff that they knew worked. So it took them a while to kind of introduce their class system. It took uh, their second game is where they got parties. Seventh game is where they really had like classes that you could kind of swap around in. Uh, third one, what the third one had classes in it so you had like a defined person as a fighter a person as like a mage that sort of thing uh fourth one had a more like an episodic story to it where you weren't following the same characters throughout it that that kind of stuff and he also talks about the graphical changes and everything how final fantasy did a better job of taking advantage of just technology to push the boundaries And he brings up how the Final Fantasy series just did a lot more and everything. And it's not to say that they're bad games, and I I don't necessarily agree with the way he characterized some of it, where uh, he was talking about the shift to 3D at one point, and how when Dragon Quest VII was released, it kind of looked old hat because it was still pixel graphics, and it didn't look as good as some of the other pixel graphics on the system on the PS1, and you would put that one with uh, Final Fantasy VII, you'd put those next to each other, and there's a, a pretty stark contrast between the way they actually look. The I will say this, the pixel graphics in Seven, for the most part, look good, but they do kind of look a little muddy and blurry, and they aren't as great as you would expect a game released in 2001 to really look especially with that style when you compare it to other pixel graphic games from that era that just overall looked better. Even some releases on the Super Nintendo looked better than that, but it wasn't bad by any stretch, but it was kind of a little it would have been a little old-fashioned. And honestly, I don't think I don't like Dragon Quest 7 at all. It, it's just too grindy and everything. But that would be for a different time. I'm not going to get too deep into that. But he um, he just brings up how one series with Dragon Quest didn't make as radical changes to it. Final Fantasy did. Uh, oh, <laughs> sorry. Um, the, oh, yeah, he also uh, brings up just 
how you would get introduced to RPGs as well. So like the Pokemon games are brought up as an example of a simplified JRPG. And that was kind of people's entry points into the genre. Uh, He also talks about just how handheld systems became a place where you could release a really great RPG. And it was just easier to play them because it was kind of hand... You had it on a handheld. You could play it anywhere in just like smaller chunks of time. You didn't have to be, you know, tethered to your couch for 10 to 20 hours or something ridiculous like that. And it was just an easier way for people who were kind of getting older, getting jobs and everything, to play a lot of these JRPGs. He also gets into uh, indie games a little bit at the end. And this was something that I kept I kept thinking about as we moved closer to the end of the book. Um, JRPG, indie games that were inspired by Japanese role-playing games and that sort of thing are, are really kind of fun. And they, you know, harken back to the 90s with uh, games that I personally enjoy a lot more than the modern games today. And, yeah, it was just... It was fun to read about that and read his uh, opinion on st- on stuff like that. Overall, the the book does just an excellent job of showing where JRPGs started and why they changed over time and kind of the current state of, of the genre overall. It's a really fun book to read. Uh, it gave me some more games to add to my ever-growing backlog. And yeah... It, it really was a lot of fun to, to sit down, read it, and just kind of get lost in it and have quite a bit of fun with the book. There was only one thing that I, I really had an issue with when it came to this book, and that was kind of the, the fluid definition of what a JRPG is. Uh, it's, it's really just a difference of opinion, to be perfectly honest. But if you take it to mean its own separate uh, subgenre under role-playing games, then you have stuff that he brings up that wouldn't fit under the JRPG kind of banner or fit under that genre's banner because they're in their own subgenres within JRPGs. You, you, we can argue about whether or not they can be in both, which I would agree they probably would, but it was just kind of a little bit different. Now, if you take the definition to mean role-playing games made for, or from Japan, so role-playing games made in Japan by a Japanese company, then, yeah, that that's... Then everything in here that he talks about makes perfect sense and everything. I don't think that there's really a correct answer on this. I think it's just something that can inspire some debate and people can argue about what is and what isn't, what should be and what shouldn't be, which is always kind of fun for the internet. Um, he does, so by, by saying that, how do I want to put this exactly? Okay, so, so the way he begins this with the origin point of JRPGs being Dragon Quest The problem I have with that is it ignores all of the RPGs that were made by Japanese companies in Japan prior to Dragon Quest. And there are quite a few. It it just feels a little odd to me that those get excluded because it doesn't doesn't fit the narrative that people want to say. It's, yeah, it's very weird (laughs) to read that. And to just see people say, no, it, become, it begins with Dragon Quest. 
well, then you're ignoring Black Onyx. Then you're ignoring a whole bunch of other stuff, like the ones that Koei released. It's it's very strange to to see that, where you would expect the genre to be a, have begun back in the early 80s. I think 1982 was the earliest one, and the name of it is escaping me at the moment, but... There were there were role playing games made in Japan prior to it, prior to Dragon Quest. Uh, there are also several. There are also several games in here, even within the Final Fantasy and the Dragon Quest series, that I would not consider to be a Japanese role playing game if they're if you're taking it as its own subgenre. And the big examples are Dragon Quest X. Final Fantasy Eleven and Final Fantasy Fourteen; those are MMORPGs. That's its own genre, and it's in its own right. Still, role-playing games. Probably, they're just Japanese MMORPGs. Not in, and they just wouldn't be in the same genre and whatnot. It feels weird to go through all these things, uh, but it's it was just something strange that I was I was reading through this. He also includes other games in here where I don't believe they fit under the Jap the a JRPG JRPG genre. <laughs> wow, man, it took me forty minutes to start screwing that up. Uh, a JRPG genre, uh, they don't necessarily fit with games. If you're saying Dragon Quest and Final Fantasy are the template for this, then I'm I'm not sure how. Final Fantasy Tactics, uh, Tactics Ogre, Secret of Mana, Secret of Evermore, how those fit in with the same style of gameplay as something like Fantasy Star, Dragon Quest, Final Fantasy. He also includes the Shining Force games, and those, Shining Force and Fire Emblem, and those don't necessarily play the same. Like Tactics Ogre, Final Fantasy Tactics, Fire Emblem, and... Um, now I'm having a brain fart. That's wonderful. Uh, Shining Force. Those all fall under like tactical or strategy RPGs. And then Secret of Mana and, and Secret of Evermore, those are more action RPGs. And then you look at some of the later Final Fantasy games where they're more action-based. Those kind of fall under action RPGs. And it, it just feels like a very muddy genre. <laughs> if you want to say JRPGs are a genre, and they still are. Some of these series don't really fit in there anymore. And other games, you know, like um like Persona, that's more of a JRPG now. It's it's very weird. It's a very confusing genre. Uh, I honestly think most of these genres just don't even matter anymore. <laughs> it's just kind of a ridiculous thing to think about unless it's a first-person shooter or something. That's pretty obvious to identify, but that's me going off on a whole nother tangent that's not totally related to the book and all. So <laughs> it just, yeah, this whole debate goes back to my opinion on, on different genres and video games. And it's really just my own opinion. Everybody is entitled to theirs. It really is. I would rather be arguing about this stuff than arguing about anything else that's going on in the world because at least this doesn't really matter. And it's a lot more fun to sit there and pick apart stuff and talk about your favorite games. So, yeah, I, I would rather go through that sort of thing. 
I do have to really praise him when we go through this. So this is basically my likes and dislikes. My biggest like was just how this was a, a pretty objective look at all of the games and and uh, different the two different series, especially the two big ones, Final Fantasy and Dragon Quest, and also kind of an objective look at uh, RPGs as well, uh, just in general. Uh, he, because he does mention a few times in this, uh, Aiden mentions certain games that he doesn't necessarily like, and he shares kind of his personal opinions on those. But they're usually after kind of praising what the game did, like what game, what the certain games did in order to kind of improve the genre or sort of push the genre in a in a different direction, and take advantage of like some of the technical specs that were on different consoles. And he talks about how just with the AAA games and everything, the the budgets have gotten more, have gotten much bigger. So you're getting larger games, but they're taking longer to actually come out, as opposed to on the Super Nintendo and on the PlayStation, where you could get a new, a uh, new Final Fantasy like every year, every two years. Now it's like six, seven years in between games. So it's kind of interesting to read that sort of thing. And it's very refreshing to have someone give you, like, a very objective look at the different games instead of kind of the weird people yelling at each other over stuff. Like, if you give any opinion on any Final Fantasy game, you'll get people in the comments section of your videos telling you that Blank is the best Final Fantasy ever. Like, that just sort of settles the debate because they said it. I'm getting into something I probably don't want to get into. But, uh, yeah, it's it was just very refreshing to have kind of a, an objective look at this, and I, I really enjoyed reading it. So, yeah, this was a, a really fun book to read. Um, it reminded me of some of the experiences I had back in the 90s playing different video games, uh, like discovering new RPGs and just having a lot of fun finding everything that was in the, in the genre or everything that... Um, JRPGs could offer. Uh, reading about games that I missed out on was also a lot of fun. It's always cool to read about a new game, or a game that's new to you. Not necessarily a new game, but something that's new to you. It's it's kind of cool to go through and find those different things. Uh, books like this are just absolutely great. The history of video games is still being written, and having this kind of helps to explore one of the more popular genres. So, yeah, I, I really enjoyed the book. It's definitely a wonderful read. Okay, let's uh, move on to, bre- on to uh, Breath of Fire now. So I, I started playing Breath of Fire a while ago uh, after I was a, a little disappointed with Secret of Evermore. I enjoyed the game, but, yeah, it was just it was kind of a, a rough one to get into. And then I moved on to uh, Breath of Fire, which, which has been a lot of fun. I'm a little over halfway done with it, so... That should come out near the uh, near the end of the month or so. It's a lot of fun. It's a great game. Uh, its story is kind of basic, but the way that has you use the different party members is pretty awesome. So each uh, party member can do, or at least the ones that I've explored, they can do something different. So if you have them leading your party, you can do different things. You can have uh, one party member that can knock down walls. You have another party member who can kind of walk through the forest without having to like find a path to go through. Because apparently the forest is a barrier in this game. But if you have the right party member leading it, you can just walk right through that. It's, it's kind of fun. 
You also have a party member who can turn into a giant fish so you can swim underwater. Like, swim over certain gaps and everything. It, there's some odd stuff in this where you get gills that you can use to like sw- to breathe underwater and, and visit a town of fishmen. A very weird town of fishmen. They're all merchants. It's Breath of Fire is a weird series of games and just weird stuff happens in it. So you, if you haven't played the game before, you play as a member of the Light Dragon clan and you are fighting against the Dark Dragon clan. And eventually your character can turn into a dragon, which is pretty cool. I always liked it when you can do that. I, I started in the series with like the third game, so... Yeah, I am. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm probably not the best on Breath of Fire lore, but it's a really fun series. The combat isn't anything special in the first game. The story isn't like amazing. It's not going to knock your socks off, but it's pretty solid for what it is. And one thing I'm kind of realizing as I play through these games, uh, this is sort of a short one. Like, I I don't remember RPGs on the SNES being this short, but hey, apparently that's the way it was, and I I was just confused the entire time. Uh, But so far, it's a pretty fun game. I'm up to the point where shit's starting to go down in the game, where the the big bad guy is sending his, uh, his generals after you, so it's pretty cool to have that. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing just what happens in it and seeing just how the game kind of wraps up. So there there should be um, a written review and a, a written review and a video review near the end of the month. So yeah, look out for those if you're following me on either YouTube or uh, just following the website. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much going to wrap everything up. Uh, I am sorry that these episodes are, come out so infrequently. Um, yeah, I, I should probably narrow down exactly a set time when these are supposed to come out, but I just, I don't know. It kind of feels like whenever I have the time and uh, whenever I feel like doing one, I'll I'll sit down and look over the stuff that I've written and the, the videos that I've made or what I'm playing, that sort of thing, and just go over that stuff. Well, I will uh I'll wrap things up. I hope everybody had a had a great Christmas and a happy new year. I hope everybody's staying safe out there. So, thank you for watch yeah, thank you for watching. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Yet to Be Named podcast, and I will talk to all of you whenever I get around to putting out another one of these. See you later. Bye.